The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, church. It's good to see you all here today. I'm so thankful to be able to be here with you today. Thank you, Gene, for the great welcome. I miss you jumping out from behind the wall and going, boo! <laughs> John's not here today. Pastor John is up in um, Minnesota, the beautiful state of Minnesota, speaking to uh, a camp this week up there. Um, please be praying for him as he's uh, speaking to, I think it's junior and senior high students this week. What a privilege it is for our pastors to be able to go and do those kind of things. And speaking of camp, I'm going to take this opportunity to remind all parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles that might be sending your children to Nebwiodak camp this year. Tomorrow is the day we're supposed to send in and have postmarked the pre-registration forms. And we don't have many yet. So if you're sending kids to camp, there are forms in the back, um, some by the check-in computers, some on the check-in or the uh, uh, table. What do you call that table? Um, <laughs> where you uh, sign up for the sign-up table. That's the name of it. Thank you. We'll get better as we go, we hope. <laughs> um, there, there are forms there that you can fill out and leave with us today. You only need to have $15 to pre-register your children. Uh, if you're um, not sure if the kids are going yet or not, um, I'd still encourage you to get them pre-registered, um, at least with that $15. Um, so if you have questions, see Mike uh, or I after church, and we'll help you get that done. We are going to set a deadline for pre-registration this year because we are under new camp management at the camp we go to at the campgrounds and they're requesting that we have all our numbers in early this year and so um, you'll be hearing more about that throughout the week. Enough for the announcements. In the uh, past few weeks we've been exploring the commands that God gave Moses to give to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments as we know them. The first four commands had to do with our relationship with Him. The fifth command changed focus a little to our relationships with each other. And it kind of begin, begins with our relationships with our family. Today, I want to visit with you about the sixth commandment. It's found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. It's pretty long. Four words. You must not murder. Most people even today would say that this command seems cut and dry. You could ask a hundred people and they would all agree that murder is wrong. Some translations use the word kill in the place of murder. And in our day and age today, 
I guess I would ask you the question, is it murder or kill that the commandment is talking about? So as we talk about that today, as we talk about this command, in the back of your mind, I want you to think about that. Is there a difference between killing and murder? And is it made clear in the commands that God gave us? When God cleaned up the world, the whole world, with a flood back in the time of Noah, the world had gotten so corrupt and the people had turned away from him in so many ways and they were mistreating each other in so many ways that God said, that's enough, I'm done with it, we're going to clean it up. And you know the story. I'm not going to go into the story. But when Noah came off of the ark with his family, God felt it necessary to give him some instructions. And in those instructions, in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, God said to Noah this phrase, If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. I thought about those words. If any human takes the life of any other human, then by a human, that person's life will be taken. But even more than that, more important than that is the phrase, for God made human beings in his own image. He set the bar high from the very beginning. All life is precious. The first known record of someone taking someone else's life is even before the flood when Cain killed his brother Abel. And God said this to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? If you can imagine God watching over us today and watching over the world, when someone is killed, his blood cries out to God. From the ground. You see, there's life in our blood. And each one of us is created in His image. And you're precious, and you're important, and you were created with a purpose. And God loves you. And it's not up to us to decide when someone else's life. Should end. In fact, it's not up to us to decide when our life ends. I was visiting with a gentleman this morning in the lobby who feels that he's lived too long. (laughs) 97 years is a long time. I said, No, not too long. (laughs) Longer than we expect sometimes, but not too long. Not up to us to decide how long we live here on this earth. All life is precious. It's also interesting to me that in the incident of Cain and Abel, it was jealousy that motivated Cain to take the life 
of his brother. And I say that now because a little bit later I'm going to share with you a story about a brother of mine. And jealousy played a part in that story. So let's take a few moments this morning to examine the sixth commandment. At first glance, we would say that it prohibits all killing. But let's turn to Exodus chapter 22 and verses 2 and 3. This is a passage in the list of commands that are included in Scripture with the Ten Commandments. And it says this, If a thief is caught in the act of breaking into a house and is struck and killed in the process, the person who killed the thief is not guilty of murder. But if it happens in daylight, the one who killed the thief is guilty of murder. A thief who is caught must pay in full for everything he stole. If he cannot pay, he must be sold as a slave to pay for his theft. And so here, God uses an example of what murder is, or isn't, maybe. (laughs) If someone's breaking into your house, and it's dark, and you can't see who that someone is, but you try to stop them, and in the process, that someone gets killed, the law said back then, you were not guilty of murder. But if that someone breaks into the house and you can see them and you tried to stop them and you killed them, you would be guilty of murder. What's the difference other than light and dark? The difference is the intent. What the motivation was behind that example is It should have been to stop the thief, not to kill him. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so there's an example that God uses. And it's pretty evident that the accidental killing while protecting one's home was not considered murder. The command doesn't prohibit accidental killing in self-defense. So what does it prohibit? Well, let's go on. I already mentioned about what God told Noah upon leaving the ark and how if someone takes another human's life, then that someone would, their life would be taken by a human. Well, that would speak to capital punishment, wouldn't it? And God kind of set that standard in the Scripture. In fact, if we were to turn to... Exodus chapter 1 and verses 22 through 25. I want to read those for you. Now suppose two men are fighting, and in the process they accidentally strike a pregnant woman, so she gives birth prematurely. If no further injury results, the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation the woman's husband demands, and the judges approve. But if... There is further injury. The punishment must match the injury. A life for a life. An eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. A hand for a hand. 
a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. We've heard that phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And they have a term for that, and I don't know that I can say it, lex talionis. It's the law of retaliation. Is that something that God was teaching during that time? Well, it appears to be evident that that's true. But what that law set the standard for was the punishment must match the crime. And that's an interesting thing to consider as we consider this sixth command. Thou shalt not murder. One of the questions that we need to consider is, what is motivating the crime? Let's, let's go on here a little bit. We could even make a case that it didn't prohibit wars in some circumstances. But I'm not going to get into that so much this morning. But the question is, what does the Sixth Commandment prohibit? It prohibits premeditated, intentional murder. It prohibits intentional murder. It even prohibited intentional but unpremeditated murder. Voluntary manslaughter is what we would call it today. There was an intent to kill. And that's what God was talking to and he was talking to the children of Israel that day and said, thou shalt not murder. I believe it even prohibits reckless homicide or involuntary manslaughter. An example of this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 8, where it says, when you build a house, you must build a railing around the edge of its flat roof. That way you will not be considered guilty of murder if someone falls from the roof. I suppose you could compare this today to someone drunk and driving and killing another. Recklessness. That was something that we need to be careful of. If we build our house in such a way that there's danger to someone else and we know there's danger in that and we don't do something about it and somebody gets killed because of it, then that would be considered murder. Maybe you didn't intend for that to happen, but you weren't careful about what you were doing and it caused it to happen. That was considered murder. Another example of that is in Exodus 21, verses 28 through 29, and it's interesting in these, in these laws that God had listed here that he uses an ox a lot. Some places you'll hear to them referred to as the ox laws. In verse 28 of Exodus 21, it says this, If an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox must be stoned. 
and its flesh may not be eaten. In such a case, however, the owner will not be held liable. But suppose the ox had a reputation of goring, and the owner had been informed but failed to keep it under control. You ever thought of an ox of having a reputation? <laughs> I know for a cowboy, horses have reputations. We had a horse on the ranch who was so bullheaded. He had a reputation. Oxes had reputations too. And it says if the ox, because he had a, when he had a reputation and the owner hadn't taken, taken care of him, it says if the ox then kills someone, it must be stoned. And the owner must also be put to death. Interesting, isn't it? Are we being careful with what we have? When there's danger, are we addressing that? There was a distinction in Israelite law between accidental death and the death motivated by hatred also. I believe that it deserves at least a mention that the sixth commandment speaks into our cultural context also. Certainly, the sixth commandment applies to us today in all the same ways. We still care about homicide, involuntary and involuntary manslaughter, and all those technical terms. In addition, though, I believe it prohibits suicide, abortion, and euthanasia. You see, every human life is precious. Unborn life is precious. Children with special needs are precious. Aging parents are precious, even when they don't remember because they're suffering from dementia. They're still made in the image of God. Nonverbal children of parents or parents, those in a wheelchair, those who are completely dependent upon others or doctors, are precious. And it's up to us to protect them. So does it fit into our culture today? You better believe it does. So what does Jesus say about this command? Let's turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Already we've talked about how the command really has to do with the condition of our heart and our intent. It also has to do with being careful with what we have and being safe. But Jesus takes things a little bit further. Maybe we could say to the spiritual side of things, Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 21, it says this, You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, 
you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone is something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. Wow. It's interesting that God began, that Jesus began these first, this first talk about this with the words you have heard that your ancestors were told, you must not murder. And ties anger into it. The sixth commandment not only prohibits violent acts of murder, but all the silent emotions and intentions of the heart. Anger, bitterness, insult, rage, jealousy. When we were talking about this message series, John came to me and asked if I would share on this topic with you because of a story that I shared with him earlier this year. And it has to do with my brother Tim. I want to give you a little bit of background in this and I'm going to sit down because I was sick earlier this week and I'm feeling a little weak. <laughs> I grew up in a family with nine children. I'm the baby. Yes, I'm the baby. I'm the youngest. And in that family, our parents, um, by the way, I want to say this too. Jean said it already. When I said the word parents, it brought this back. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> um, Dad and mom loved to sing. And as we were growing up, they, music was in our house. And when I was just a little boy, at two and a half years old, we began to sing concerts, the Peterson family, in the eastern end of this state and over into Iowa and up into South Dakota and down into Kansas. And we would put on weekend concerts, usually close enough that we could make it home to milk the cows on the farm um, or milk them before we went. Um, but we grew up singing. And one of my brothers, his name was Tim, as soon as he graduated high school, he joined a gospel quartet. And they were called the Chordsman Quartet. And they traveled around the, the country and sang gospel music. And um, Tim was the bass. And they did that for a while. And then that group disbanded. And Tim uh, started his own group called the, the, Good, the Samaritans. Not the Good Samaritans, but the Samaritans. And they traveled and sang for a while, and then that became a little too expensive for them to travel and, and pay everybody. And 
they always went for a free will offering. They didn't say you had to pay so much. And they went to the little churches. But they sang um, the gospel music, and so Tim wanted to continue to do that, and so he was one of the first people to begin to record his own voice on, on separate tracks. And uh, he would do bass and tenor and baritone and then sing the lead. Or he'd do the lead, um, bass and, and baritone, and then he'd sing the tenor or whatever he wanted to do. And he traveled around and, and went all the way up into Canada, down into Mexico, went to Jamaica, uh, throughout the United States, and did that for many, many, many years. One day, I received a phone call from my father saying that he had received a phone call from the Iowa Bureau of Investigation and that they had found a body in a motel room in Osceola, Iowa. And they weren't positive, but they thought that it was Tim because his van with all of his equipment and all of the money that he had, um, all of his supplies, he lived in this old rider van as he traveled, had a bed in it that uh, the youth ranch up in Pine Haven in Montana had built for him. There was Everything was there. The money he had in his pocket was still there. And they needed somebody to come identify him. And dad said, we don't know for sure, but everything indicates that it's your brother. A little, little while later, we received a phone call verifying that that was the case. Tim had lived and, and uh, had his headquarters out of Hiawatha, Kansas. And he had um, received a phone call from an individual saying they wanted to set up an audition with him at this hotel in this room. And the individual that had asked him to come there um, had checked into this motel with a false ID and a false address. And um, they had not caught him yet, but they had an idea of who it might be. The person that was in the motel that checked the fella in had helped them make a composite drawing. So when the family gathered, because of this, they showed us this drawing and said, do you know this man? None of us had ever seen him. We had no idea why anyone would do this to our brother. There was, it didn't make sense. Tim was always happy. He was always friends with everyone. Many of you or some of you in here know, knew him and had been to his concerts. It just didn't make sense. And so they were looking for this individual and while we were all gathered at home there, dad received a phone call from a young lady whom Tim had scheduled to go on a Christian cruise. Tim used to sponsor Christian cruises that went down into the Bahamas. And each of us, the rest of our families, 
um, of his brothers and sisters, each of us got to go with him because he had gotten enough people to go that he earned free fare for us to go along with him. And he scheduled other groups to go along with him to sing, and the cruise line gave them a room on the ship where we held a mini revival. And he had scheduled this young lady to go along to sing. She was from Iowa, and um, she had a beautiful voice on one of these cruises. And another group called the Gateway Singers, some of you will recognize that name, were scheduled to go on that same cruise. And she called and she said to Dad, she said, I think that this may be an old boyfriend of mine who I told I was going on the cruise with Tim, but I didn't tell him why. And she said, I think he may have gotten jealous. And he may be the one. And so she sent pictures, got a hold of the police department where she was at. They sent those pictures out. And the Nebraska Department of Investigation, the Iowa Department of Investigation, the Kansas Department of Investigation, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation were all involved in the the manhunt for this person. Still to that point, all I had seen was a composite drawing. They scheduled the funeral to be at um, First Christian Church in Norfolk. And at that time, I believe the facility held about 300 people. <laughs> as, as the family walked in to that auditorium, I remember scanning the auditorium, looking for that face from that drawing that I had seen. Because they thought there was a good chance in these kind of crimes, they called it a crime of passion, that oftentimes they would show up at a funeral to make sure that the job was done. I remember walking down that aisle looking for that face I don't know what I'd have done if I'd have seen that face, but I know what I wanted to do. I wanted to do to my brother, to to him what he had done to my brother. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. I understand why when someone kills someone that you love, that you have the tendency to want to do the same thing. I think it's a natural reaction and probably a normal reaction. In the scriptures in Exodus chapter 21, we can read where there, was, there were places that God had built cities for people to run to if they accidentally killed someone to find refuge. They called them cities of refuge. And they could escape there and be safe until they were put to trial. And I I understand the reason for that. Because we want to take 
care of the individual immediately. In the old westerns, what did they do? They got out a rope and they found a tree and they took care of them. Yeehaw, right? <laughs> if you were here last weekend, <laughs> I saw some of the teachers giggling about that. <laughs> I knew that feeling. Praise God I didn't see him. I don't know if he was there. I know the, 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 the investigators were. They told us they would be around, and if they found him, that they would apprehend him it, discreetly as possible. That auditorium was filled. The parking lot had chairs set up in it with the sound piped out to the parking lot. A few days later, they caught him. His name was Robert. I won't say his last name. He was sent to prison for life without parole because it was premeditated. They discovered in his home that he had been tracking my brother for at least six months, trying to connect. But Tim traveled so far, so fast, without a lot of, of publicity, that he had a hard time catching up with him. And he just happened to come close, so Robert was able to carry out what he had planned. When they found Tim... The man that they called was, the only thing Tim had on him was a business card. And it had the telephone number for a um, garden place in Kansas that the family that he stayed with owned. And so they called that number, and it was the son of those people who would have been in his late 20s, maybe 30 at that time, who was asked to go identify him. And Tony is his name. And he said the only way I could identify him was his hands. He had been beaten with a baseball bat all around the head. No other bruises on him. The motivation was jealousy. And the jealousy had set in so deeply that it controlled Robert's mind and heart and actions. And he spent days and weeks and months trying to take care of this jealousy that had welled up in him. When you think about this command, thou shalt not murder and you think about the intent that God's talking about with that command. Those are the things that God's talking about. What's controlling you? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves. So Robert was sentenced to life without parole. And over time... I was principal at the Garing Christian Academy in Garing. And I was going through the motions of leading that school, planning devotions for the kids each day, speaking for chapel services, singing 
for different congregations once in a while. But knowing that I had something inside that was keeping me from the relationship with Jesus that I once had. Not fully understanding what was controlling my emotions. The anger was there. The anger was not only to Robert, but it was to God. How could you let something like this happen? Why? Struggling with that inside. Going through the motions as a Christian. And then we had a fellow from Kansas come up and do a revival there at the church at 7th and Q. And he spoke on this passage from Matthew chapter 6. Beginning with verse 9. You'll recognize it. It's a pretty common Passage, and many of you probably have it memorized. Jesus says, pray like this. May your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And this individual preached on these passages from Jesus. And he talked about how in his family, his daughter was so sick that they had to take care of her and she was bound in a wheelchair. And, and many times they asked, why? Why, God, would you allow this beautiful little girl to be in this condition? And he talked about how he He blamed God. And I thought, that's me. I blame God for the loss of my brother, whom was leading people to Christ. And he said, don't miss these words. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive you. Did Robert Ben deserve to be forgiven for killing my brother in such a brutal way? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if he deserved it or not. What matters, folks, is if I forgive him or not. Because if I don't forgive him, what did it say? I won't be forgiven either. And what, what was it that I had in my heart? It was the very thing that Jesus was talking about. Anger towards Robert and towards God. 
That's what motivates murder. Robert was angry because his ex-girlfriend went on this cruise with someone else. He didn't even know why. But the evil one persuaded him to carry out what the evil one wanted him to do. Who had control over his life? It wasn't God. And then I had to decide who had control over my life. I was trying to carry that on my own. I needed to get rid of that and give it to him and let him take care of that. Because I was guilty of judgment and deserved judgment because of those feelings in my life. You see, when we commit a sin against these commandments that we have here, it has an effect on the people around us. It had an effect on the school when I was leading the school. It had an effect on my family. So I went forward that night after he preached and I confessed what I was going through. And the elders there prayed with me and I decided I needed to write a letter to Robert. I penned a letter out. I sent it to him. I don't know if he ever got it. I assume he did. I was telling one of my sisters back in Norfolk about this, and she said, you knew Dad went to the sentencing, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And she said, did you hear what he did? And I said, no. And she said, well, before the judge pronounced sentence, he asked Dad if he wanted to say anything to Robert. Dad said, yeah. Dad walked up to Robert and looked him in the eye and said, what you took from my family can't be replaced. But God still loves you. And if you ask him, he will forgive you. And because God tells me that I need to forgive you, I will too. But for you to be forgiven so that you don't face judgment, you need to ask him for that. And he turned around, walked back and sat down. You see, Dad understood the scripture. Dad understood the love that God has for us. And no matter who we are, life is precious, even Robert's. Thou shalt not murder. Because it has to do with our intent, our heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we continue our series through these commands and we think about how much you love us and father how that you've given us rules and guidelines to live in because 
you want what's best for us. Even in these situations when we feel it's so cut and dry and we think that we could take care of it. Father, you're thinking about us and you're thinking about our heart and you're thinking about our relationship with you and you're thinking about our relationship with each other. Father, that's the reason you give us those guidelines. Just like when we give our children rules to live by in our homes. It's because we love them. And it's because you love us that you gave us your son. And that he showed us what grace and mercy is all about. And he showed us how precious all life is and how far we should go to love each other and to forgive each other. Protect us, Father, from the evil one. Help us if we have animosity towards someone else to take care of that today. To seek forgiveness, even if they don't ask for it. Help us to look to you for the strength to live our lives, even when it's tough. Even when it seems like we can't go on. Thank you. Thank you for loving us so much that you would... Give us these guidelines. Thank you for loving us so much that you gave us Jesus, your son, to give his life for us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.